If you uh, would like a Bible to follow along with us this morning, I encourage you, we always encourage everyone to follow along if if possible. Uh, Just raise your hands and uh, we'll get a Bible to you if you don't have one already. Uh, Before we get into today's scripture, we're going to do a little something. Uh, You guys probably already know this by now about me. When I do preach on a Sunday morning, it's simply what we covered in the youth ministry that same week. And so you guys get to hear what the youth all heard. Uh, and something else we do in the youth ministry, we uh, spent all last year doing something called a catechism. If you never heard of a catechism before, there's simply questions and answers based upon the essential truths and beliefs that we hold in the Christian faith. And it's a, uh, it's a form of learning that the, in the, within the word catechism is the word echo. And it's this idea that they're meant to really be memorized, these answers to these questions. And uh, it's a good basis, it's a good foundation uh, to lay down for those new to the faith, and especially for our children. And so uh, I encourage, if you've never tried a catechism before, there, uh, there's free apps on, on, on the phones, uh, on any um, uh, website. There's uh, Westminster uh, Catechism. Uh, we're going to be reading from what's called the New City Catechism. And uh, we're just going to be doing five of those questions that directly relate to our text this morning. And so what's going to happen is uh, something else I, I, I like to do when we do catechisms is for everyone to stand. Can you guys just stand with me, please, while we do this? And uh, I'm going to read what's in the blue up there, and, and you guys will simply uh, read what's in the green in as much unison as possible. And to help us with that, uh, I've asked Camille uh, to come up, and she's going to read the answers uh, with you guys. And you guys will simply follow her lead, and so, is she up here? Is she still, she forgot. It's okay. Uh, (laughs) Who is in here? Lance, can you come on up here, please? Thanks. You could use that microphone there. Uh, Lance, I'm choosing Lance because he's one of our youth leaders, and he serves faithfully on Thursday nights as one of our middle school boys leaders, and he's a small group leader for the 6th and 7th grade boys, and he does a great job shepherding them on Thursday nights, and uh, he knows the drill. And so, all right, Lance, uh, you will lead them off in the green after I read from the blue. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Why must the redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. And last one. Does Christ's death mean that all of our sins can be forgiven? Yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God will remember our sins no more. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. You see how that works? If you've never done a catechism question and answer before, you know, these are, are concise answers to critical questions that we should be asking about the Christian faith. And so if you, uh, once again, I encourage you, that's from the New City Catechism, and they have an app you could download on your phones or your tablets, whatever it might be. Uh, that's where those questions come from. Uh, you'll find that various catechisms are, are very similar to one another, uh, a lot of them will have the same kinds of questions or just might be worded a little differently. But uh, certainly pick a catechism and start challenging yourself. And how would you answer those questions? If someone were to ask you, why must the Redeemer be truly God? How would you answer that? Why must the Redeemer be truly human? Can all of our sins be forgiven? Uh, or would you be prepared to answer that question if, if a new believer or an unbeliever came and asked you who wanted to learn about the faith, uh, would you have a prepared answer for those kinds of questions? And this is a place where, where catechisms are very helpful, not for our own edification, but also in ministering to others. 
this is something I also encourage for, for families to do, as this, is, this creates a, a good environment. It's a very easy way to create an environment to have conversations about essential things in the faith. Uh, when we go over these questions and answers, uh, it creates that, that environment where you can talk about these things uh, together as a family and, and uh, go through it together. So if you have children in the home, uh, I would definitely encourage you to do some form, form of catechism uh, in, in your worship time together. You guys have those same questions in your notes page because uh, I, I, I wanted you guys to go home with those things and on the back side to use it for notes. But uh, as we go through the text this morning through, for, for, through John, uh, you'll see just how much this text, uh, those questions are critical to our text and why those answers to those questions are so important as well. Before we do that, let's, uh, go, to the God, let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessing over our, our study of his word. God, we ask for your help in understanding the text this morning. And uh, the letter of James says, be, be slow to anger and, and slow to speak, but quick to hear. In other words, we should be very excited, very eager to hear from the word of God but yet, at the same time, we should be very cautious and slow about assuming its meaning and its, its understanding. That without, even with proper and studying and hours and hours of studying, we still may miss a lot of the, the, uh, uh, the significance of your word. And we could be studying your word for our whole lives, and yet we will still fall short of, of fully understanding it. And so here we ask for your help in, in uh, understanding your text as it applies to us now. And we just pray for your blessing over that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 1, uh, verse 14. While you're turning there, there's a couple uh, types of faith that I'd like to propose to you guys. And, and these are just categories or definitions that are my own. If you Google these, you'll probably find... Uh, different definitions or people that use these terms in different ways. But there's two types of faith that I'd like to address concerning our text. And one type of faith is, I call it, circumstantial faith. Uh, this is a faith that is based upon the quality of the current circumstances in your life. Now, circumstantial faith is based upon the quality of the current circumstances in your life. I'll explain that in a moment. But the other faith we're going to look at as well is what I would call a knowledge-based faith. This is a faith that we have that is based on the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. We see both of these faiths at play within the church. Circumstantial faith is a way of someone who has a circumstantial faith, they would measure God's love based upon how their quality of life is. If they're undergoing, uh, going through serious trials or a painful time in their life, they might feel that God does not love them. If painful things happen in their life or someone hurt them in a way that is unimaginable, they might feel as if God does not love them. It is circumstantial faith. Their, 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 uh, their view of God's love for them is based upon how well is their life going and how difficult is their life. Uh, I would call this, this kind of faith, uh, circumstantial faith, a deceived form of faith. That, that there's many people, I think, who would call themselves Christians or, or, or maybe even think that they have a belief in God simply because they believe he's out there, but yet their faith wavers based upon their current circumstances. And this is a dangerous faith to have. Uh, not only would I say that it's not a saving faith, but this is a faith where people, it's a finicky faith, where things are going well, they feel saved, and when things are not going well, they question their salvation. This is certainly not the kind of confusion that God wants us to have. This sort of faith, I think, comes out of this place where, where it's initially good, where, where we have good intentions. You know, we, we want God to heal us physically. We want God to deliver us from, from uh, uh, painful moments in our past. We want God to heal us from wounds, whether physical or emotional. Uh, we certainly uh, want to feel God's love in these things. But we also, uh, these kinds of people would also want uh, God to 
spare them of all persecutions or afflictions or or unnecessary pain as maybe they'll, they'll call it. Uh, things that they think that aren't necessary in their life. Why did God cause this to happen in my life? I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't ask for this in my life. This is a circumstantial faith. The problem with this kind of faith that I think many professing Christians have is that it wouldn't make any sense logically to base our our view of God's love for us on how our current circumstances are. Because if that's, if, regardless of how it feels, if that's true, then what does that say about the Christians around the other parts of the world that are currently being persecuted to death for their faith? Do they have a false form of faith because they are not being spared of these afflictions and these persecutions and these, these torments? Not at all. And that's why I call this a deceiving form of faith. We don't think about the, the, the implications it has when, when things feel good. Well, uh, how is that consistent for those who live in other parts of the country that are not as fortunate as ours or not as well off as ours? And, and so we have to face these difficult issues that if, in fact, there are Christians around the, the other parts of the world that are not nearly as privileged as we are in the States, what is it about their faith in places like China and Africa and North Korea? What is it about their faith that's real if it's not about their current circumstances? Uh, I encourage everyone to look up, if you take notes, write this down, Open Doors USA. Open Doors USA is probably the leading organization in serving and ministering to the persecuted church. On their website, you'll find a list of the top 50 persecuted countries uh, Christian, of Christian persecution around the world. And they rate the persecution based on violence and uh, availability of to be able to worship publicly, um, uh, the freedom that they have to meet together publicly, or all those kinds of things. They, they, they rate all these things. And the, most, the, uh, the country they would rate as the most number one persecuted country in the world for Christian faith, for Christians, is North Korea where they're still being placed in encampments uh, for their faith, where they're treated poorly, they're taken away from their families, they're put to death at times. Uh, most other countries are going to be in the Middle East or in, in, uh, in the Africa continent. Uh, but that's a great resource to use is for yourselves, is this reality of there are Christians who love the Lord, who have a saving faith in Christ Jesus. It's not based upon their circumstances. It's based upon their knowledge of who Jesus is. And there are Christians around the world who could use our help, just as we see in the letters of the New Testament, of Christians helping other Christians in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. That there are ways for us to serve fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Uh, there's another form of circumstantial faith that uh, I would call felt needs faith. Uh, if you've been around churches for a while, and you've been in and out of the church, or been a part of any other churches, you might be aware of the ministries that serve to uh, those struggling with finances, marriage classes, parenting courses, uh, whatever it might be, uh, addictions course, addictions groups, right? Uh, all these are what we would call felt needs ministries. These are needs that people feel that they have uh, that they would like to get help for. And the, the hope for felt needs ministries is... is is an initially a good thing. You know, our hope is that as we help people and, and meet their and try to meet their immediate needs and their physical needs and, and uh, show them God's wisdom through the scriptures, our hope as a church is that we could point them to their ultimate need in Christ for the totality of their life, their, their total need, their total depravity before God, and that there is forgiveness offered through Christ that God promises those who confess their sins to him. So that's the hope of these felt needs ministries. One of the dangers or one of the uh, temptations that are out there for felt needs ministries is that if I'm someone who's outside the church and I'm an unbeliever, and I see that this, there's a church offering financial help for those who are struggling their finances, and I'm attracted to that, and so I sign up for this church's financial class, and I receive good wisdom and good help, and, and sure enough, I'm out of debt in a year or two years later, and, and I, I owe all the thanks to that class that that church offered. The danger in that is thinking that I'm saved because God helped me in my finances. See, there's a, uh, something, a phrase that I would use for those kinds of situations, and I think the phrase goes, they're broken, but they're not humbled. 
They might be broken, they might admit their brokenness, that they need help in certain areas of their life, but they're not humbled in the fact that they don't admit their need for Christ, for forgiveness of their sins, or for the fact that they need, they, their whole life is a mess, uh, not just that one area. This whole idea of felt needs is rather a biased, uh, uh, biased uh, circumstance, right? We, it's whatever need that I feel I have. If I feel like I have everything in order in all these other areas, well, then I feel like my only need is help with my finances. If I get that in order, then I have my whole life put together. And that's the danger uh, of those who um, are attracted to these felt needs ministries is that if we don't preach the gospel, the whole gospel to them in, in those ministries, the fear is uh, those people being uh, thinking that they're saved because they came to God for help in this one area. But yet, it required no repentance. They probably didn't even have to consider themselves sinners to go to that class. Maybe they just, they just thought they needed help in finances. And that is a crucial part of the gospel of Christ, is repentance of our sins, is realizing that our whole life is a mess, we are lost as people, and we need God's intervention in our lives to be forgiven. So that's circumstantial faith. Uh, I just want to take this moment to encourage, uh, lovingly encourage us as we grow in our in our uh, prayer requests. Uh, you know, we have a strong uh, prayer ministry of sorts in, when it comes to people sharing their prayer requests. And we have a prayer team that's been calling people uh, for uh, re- trying to receive updates on people's prayer requests. And, and we would always love to see our prayer ministry grow stronger in this church. I know that Pastor Andy's mentioned that several times in this last several years of, of areas of this prayer ministry as a church where he'd like to see us grow in, this, in uh, praying as a church. And one of the areas I'd like to encourage us as a church to grow in our prayer ministry is keeping in mind uh, uh, eternity is that when we pray for our loved ones, it's really easy to just pray for physical needs. You know, pray for my loved one. Uh, you fill in the blank because they were diagnosed with or they are suffering with or they have this. And uh, those are real things, real trials that are going on in people's lives that we don't want to diminish. But I want to lovingly encourage us as a church that I hope that our prayers for them doesn't stop there. That if they're a believer, be praying for their faith. Pray for the perseverance of their faith during this trial. That regardless if they're healed or not, that they will be more mature of a believer as a result of that trial. Because ultimately, that's, what, uh, that, that's how a true faith is defined at the end, is those who persevered through all the trials in life that, God, that, that happened in every single person's life, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, we all go through the same trials. We all go through uh, losing loved ones. We all go through sicknesses and injuries. We all go through parenting trials. We all go through losses in life. We all go through those things. The fine line is those who profess Christ, they, if they persevere through those trials, they have proven to have a true faith in Christ. So I encourage us as a church to uh, think, think more eternally minded in our prayer requests, that keeping in mind that our hope is not to be healed of all sicknesses and injuries here on earth, but the fact that God offers us healing for our sin and forgiveness for our sins, because without that forgiveness and without that healing, we will uh, come under his wrath and his punishment for those sins. But forgiveness is being offered to us. That's being eternally minded in our prayer requests. If they're an unbeliever, pray that their trials bring them to the Lord. That's circumstantial faith. Knowledge-based faith. This is simply based on knowledge in Jesus Christ. You know, the fact that God's love is measured by the cross of Christ. So it's not the circumstances I'm going through that, that I measure how much God loves me, uh, how much money I have, or how well my children are behaving, or whatever it might be. That's not how I measure God's love for me. The way I measure God's love for me is by looking at what Christ accomplished on the cross. That, so that even when I go through the most difficult times, I can say confidently, God does love me immensely because I have been forgiven of my sins. That it's not my circumstances that God saves me from. It's my sin that he saves me from. That's our hope in Christ. 
One of the most uh, biggest implications of this is when we uh, look at our lives as we live around other people. Uh, it, it could be very easy for us to ask questions, uh, especially when it comes to people who have hurt us in the past or recently, people who have hurt us emotionally or physically, who might ask God, how could you let this happen to me? And I want to say as sensitively as possible, my answer, when people ask those questions, my answer is usually along the lines of, the same reason why he allows you to hurt other people. That just as God gives you and me the free will to go home and choose to love our spouses or be hurtful to our spouses, everyone else has that same free will. And I mention that now because when we start blaming God or asking God these questions, how could you allow this to happen to me? I want us to, to, once again, think of things more eternally minded, that it's our sin that God saves us from, which means that those who have hurt us, it's their sin that God needs to save them from, that they need to be saved from. It's their sin that they need to repent of. Just as we have all hurt other people in the past, and we'll probably continue to hurt people when we, uh, whether we intend to or not throughout the rest of our lives, uh, whether it's with our words or our actions, it's our sin that God saves us from. And, and so that's what I'd like for us to focus on when we ask that question, how could God allow this to happen to me, or how could God allow that person to hurt me? The same reason goes for why he allows us to choose to love or hurt one another. We all have that same free will from, from God, and we are all held accountable for our own sin. But this is a knowledge-based faith in Christ. And so this gives us wisdom and counsel when we struggle with these things. When hurtful things have come our way, we remember that it's not the circumstances that God saves us from, it's our sin. There is no promise in Scripture that where it says that God won't allow people to hurt you. There's a, a famous psalm, Psalm 91, that people use out of context all the time. It, it, uh, there's a phrase in Psalm 91, verse 10, where it says, No, I shall cause no evil to befall you. And people love using that verse when they're spared of when they're spared in a car crash. Maybe maybe they have a uh, a brush with death, and they and God and they, God has spared their life. And a lot of people will be quick to quote that verse. Uh, I was spared because Psalm 91 says that no evil shall befall me. What I would like to remind that person is how many times they've been sick in the past, how many times they fell down and got hurt in the past, how many times someone made fun of them or maybe bullied them in the past. Uh, you know, we tend to, uh, when it comes to those kinds of promises, we tend to only focus on the ones where they worked and forget all the other ones where it, it wasn't true. And that's what I find when people quote those verses, is they only remember the times when it actually happened. Because they take verses out of context and they use it for their own usage. So this is a knowledge-based faith. Uh, the reason why this is so important, because we're going to get into John chapter 1, to where... The whole Gospel of John can be summed up this way. Chapter 1 is John explaining how Jesus is God, and the rest of the Gospel is John proving it. All right, That Jesus is God, and why that's important, and he spends the rest of the Gospel showing uh, and, and proving his point that Jesus is God, and here's why it's important to know that. So this is why it's important to, to discern the difference between circumstantial faith and a knowledge-based faith. Because my fear is that there are people who think that they're saved, but yet they have a circumstantial faith in God. That they are finicky in their faith. They waver in their thoughts of whether or not God loves them, or if God has forgiven them. And yet there are the knowledge-based faith people who they are secure in their foundation, they're secure in their salvation, uh, because they have an understanding of what Jesus did, and who he is, and why that's important. So in John chapter 1, uh, you know, we also have a good example of this. We, I want to present to you two good examples of a circumstantial faith versus a knowledge-based faith. Job and his wife. If you're not familiar with Job and his wife, Job had a lot, and then God allowed Satan to take it away. And the sum of the story was, uh, or the, 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 one of the results was, Job's wife wanted Job to turn and curse God because of what had happened. She said, are you crazy? Turn and curse God. Job's wife had a circumstantial faith. Job, who said, are you crazy woman? Does not God give and take away? Should we just be happy, love God in the good times? Job 
was righteous in all that he did. He never he didn't sin against God in anything that he said and did in that moment because he had a knowledge-based faith on who God is. That's a perfect example. And one other example I'll read to you in 2 Thessalonians, and we'll move on to our text from there. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. Your faith is growing, they say. And, and the love for each one of you uh, of toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the, catch this part, the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. That's a perfect example of a knowledge-based faith. Their growth in Christ is not measured by whether or not God is sparing them of pain in this life. Their growth in Christ is measured by the fact that they are continuing to love God and love one another more and more, despite the fact that they're persevering through trials and afflictions. That God is, uh, they, God is allowing them and causing them to endure these things. That's a great example of a knowledge-based faith. It's not based upon the persecutions and afflictions. They do not feel as if God has forsaken them. They don't feel as if God doesn't love them. They're growing in love for one another more and more, despite of the things that they're going through. This is our hope in Christ. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, as we get into who Jesus is, I just want to remind us the fact that there are other major religions who also claim to love Jesus who do not have a saving faith in Jesus, according to the scriptures. Muslims would claim that they love Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses would claim that they have faith in Jesus. Mormons would claim that they have faith in Jesus. And so this is the importance of not getting overly excited when we hear people tell us, oh, I love Jesus, or I have faith in Jesus, that follow-up questions are okay. It's okay to ask people follow-up questions when they profess their, their, their faith in Christ. Say, really, tell me about that. What, uh, what do you believe about Christ? Or why do you love him so much? Or what did Christ do for you? It's okay to ask follow-up questions. In the youth ministry, I am known for my follow-up questions, and it bugs the students because I make them explain what they are saying. And they, they try to get away with one-word answers, and they know that if they try to do a one-word answer, I will ask a follow-up question until I feel like they've actually explained to me what they're trying to communicate. But follow-up questions are a good thing. And we just don't, don't take it at face value when someone professes their faith in Christ. I think one of the dangers in this is in children as well. That Even as a father and as a pastor, uh, I could get overly excited when I hear my kids singing worship songs and, and uh, quoting Bible verses and answering uh, all the catechism questions. Or when my son asks me about baptism, I get really excited about that. But when I ask follow-up questions, that's when I understand that I need to keep preaching the gospel to them. That ignorance is not an option for me as a parent. That I can't just uh, allow my kids to get by with easy answers. Follow-up questions are a good thing. It's important to know and have confidence in someone's faith. As Christians, as we worship together, it's important for us to, to know that we're worshiping the same God in the same faith, that we are unified in Christ. My, one of my fears is that many times as parents, when they have children, we think so innocently of our children right off the bat. You know, we, we don't want to think too much about, or I shouldn't say we don't want to. Uh, we, uh, the, the concern is that parents don't spend a lot of time preaching the gospel to babies, right? Because, well, they can't understand much. And, and so maybe I'll wait till they're older, and, and they get a little older, and they get a little older. And, and the longer we wait, the, the more awkward it becomes, and the harder it is to initiate those conversations. Preaching to teenagers, and they don't care what we say anymore. And they don't want to hear what we have to say. And now we feel like we've, uh, parents might feel they've lost all hope in having uh, critical conversations with them, and they're just hoping their kid is saved. And I hope that doesn't describe the parenting of most Christians. You know, I, I hope and pray that as, as believers uh, who have children, I hope and pray that we understand the importance that what does it say about us as Christians if we don't 
take our own time outside of church and outside of youth group and outside of these other activities, uh, that we don't take the time in our own homes to talk about our faith. That's my concern. It's important as we look at these few verses now that when we say we love Jesus or when people say they have faith in Jesus, we need to know what they mean by that. And we need to know what we mean by that. When we say we love Jesus and we say we have faith in Jesus, we need to know what we mean by that. Let's get to our text. That went longer than I wanted. Sorry. Verse 14 to 18. Let's read it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Verse 14, the word became flesh, simply is following up the section of, of where it talks about as, as we received him, as we, those who received the word became children of God, and when they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born of God. And then you, I could almost picture John's mentality here saying, by the way, speaking of children, the word became a child. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's as if the word became an actual child to dwell among us. And you might think of uh, times when married couples might say, uh, might be saying excitedly to one another or to their friends, we're trying to have a baby. At that point you say, too much information, right? Uh, but it's, uh, but we, you know, we have this idea that when we try to have kids, we're doing it of our own volition, right? When we, uh, when we want to have kids, of course we'll have kids right away. Of course we'll get pregnant right away or when we want to. And this verse, this passage is pointing to the fact that that's not how salvation works. We do not become children of God because we wanted to. We were born, uh, we were made children of God. We were born again into God's family because he wanted to. It was something initiated by God. And so this idea that word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, the word dwell really is talking about this idea of like setting up camp where we are. You, know, you might get this picture when you read through Exodus and God's talking about building, having them build this tabernacle in the tent of meeting and that is where God's going to dwell among them in their midst. When, when they have to appear before him, when the high priests perform their duties, they are meeting with God amongst their, their community, amongst their camp. And so when the word came and dwelt among us, this, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, this word became flesh. This word that was in the beginning was with God, was God, is God, created all things. This same word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he says we saw his glory, that we, remember it's not talking about we, right? We weren't there. When the apostle John, John is writing, John, uh, who we think is John Zebedee that wrote this, he literally would have seen his glory in terms of he saw Jesus heal people. He saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus or heard Jesus forgive people's sins. And when the Pharisees said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus can because he is God. And so John saw these things happening. What I think he probably would have imagined too or would have remembered is uh, 50 some odd years in his past was when he saw out of him, Peter and James were with Jesus uh, the transfiguration on the mount. When they were the only witnesses to see Jesus transfigured in the clothes so white that it was impossible to get any clothes that clean and they saw him speak with Moses and Elijah on this mountaintop and in just as much an instant it was gone. And they were just standing there with him again. And they heard God's voice come out of heaven. They saw that the, the, the glory of God, uh, of, uh, veiled in a way, but unveiled in another way, come out of Jesus uh, for in that moment. And where that word is, is a metamorphosis. Jesus uh, went through a metamorphosis in that sense where he was transfigured. And when they witnessed uh, uh, the glory of God that was in the sun. And so remember, John had firsthand experience when he's saying, we saw the glory of the Son, of this Word that became flesh. 
the glory, if we continue reading the glory, uh, is only the begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The full of grace and truth part is going to explain itself in the next couple verses in 16 and 17. Uh, verse 15 it goes, And John testified about him, crying, say, John the Baptist, not John Zebedee, that it was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He's, he's affirming, he's using John the Baptist's testimony that this word did exist in eternity past. This word did exist before he ever came in the flesh. In verse 16 and 17, for of his fullness, who, who's his? The word, this word that became flesh. Of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And then verse 17 follows, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. When we say that we received of his fullness, what was he full of again in verse 14? Or verse, yeah, verse 14? grace and truth, right? As we received of his fullness, his grace and truth, we received of his fullness of grace and truth, and then grace upon grace. What's the significance of the, the grace and truth? You know, it's that we're uh, here, he, he mentions the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given, but grace of truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so Romans 5 says this, that the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does law, how does the law of Moses make sin increase? Well, remember, these are people who came out of captivity. The people who received the law of Moses came out of 430 years of slavery. And so as slaves, for that long, they had generations and generations who didn't know how to live life outside of the life of slavery. All they knew was oppression and being ruled by their oppressors. So God gave them the law to live by when they had their freedom. They're freed of that slavery. They're freed of that bondage. They had a law now to live by. And guess what? They're really bad at keeping it. Really bad. And God warned them. You, uh, God even made provisions for them. That's what sacrifices are for. He made provisions for them that when you mess up, because you will, these are the ways that you could atone for your sin. So being righteous in that time didn't mean that you're sinless. It meant that you, you place your faith in what God told you to do, even when you messed up. So when we read of people being righteous in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're, they're sinless. It meant that they had a heart for God that they desired to do what was right even when they did what was wrong. They had a desire to want to atone for their sins because they realized that they had sinned against God and God alone. So the law causes sin to increase. That's the truth that Jesus brought. He came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And we see it ultimately fulfilled when he died on the cross and he atoned for the sins of the world, all those who would believe in him. He brought truth. And the grace is what Jesus accomplished for us. Grace upon grace. As Romans 5 says, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. You know, as, as grace abounds all the more. As we, uh, as we uh, grow in our faith, one, one of the major things that should be happening in our, in our spiritual growth is that we should be more aware of sin in our life, not less aware of it. That uh, we're not sinning more intentionally, but as we are studying the Word of God and learning about who this God is and what He loves and what He hates, that we're going to uh, uh, more, more and more sin is going to be revealed and exposed in our life. And just in that moment when we feel guilty of it, in that same moment we can rejoice that God's grace had already abounded more than that sin. This is a knowledge-based faith, a knowledge-based faith, a faith based on the knowledge of what Jesus accomplished for us. That as we are broken and humbled in the awareness and revelation of our sin, we could rejoice at the very same time. Because as quickly as we sinned, it was forgiven. That God's grace abounded all the more. That's why we receive grace upon grace. We could all probably think of areas where we struggle sinfully. And as we, we hate that we do it, but yet we find ourselves struggling in that same area of our life sinfully. We know that God hates it. We know it's wrong. In those moments, we can rejoice that it's God's grace upon grace in those areas in our life. 
That is what's keeping us going. Grace upon grace. That's what it's referring to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about how Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus placed his righteousness on us and he took upon our sinfulness. So whether a person is a Christian for uh, an hour or a day or 10 years or a Christian, uh, they've been a believer for 50 years, if you were to ask that person, why are you going to heaven? Their answer should be the same across the board because Christ died on the cross for my sins. It should never change. One of the temptations as we grow as Christians or as we live longer as Christians is thinking that somehow our works are playing a, a, a part in our salvation, that we place faith in Christ, and now we're keeping it going by doing good works. And over time, the temptation is to be prideful and say, well, of course God will let me in, because look at all the missions trips I've been on. Look at all the things I've done to prove my love for him. It's not so much what we've done, uh, how much we've done in response, because there's those who are saved on their deathbeds who have a genuine repentance before they breathe their last breath. And they lived a whole lifetime of sin, and yet they are saved because God's grace abounded all the more. Grace upon grace. He didn't have to do anything. That person didn't have to prove their love for God in any way. They didn't have to get dunked in a tank or in, a, in water or in baptism. It's based on faith in Christ alone. That's what Ephesians 2.8 tells us. Baptism is simply a part of obedience for those who love the Lord. And we do it as an act of love and an act of obedience to him. But that's not how we're saved. We're saved through our faith in Christ. So whether you're a Christian for a day or 50 years, your answer should never change. You're saved because if you're a Christian for 50 years, then you should be all that more thankful, right? You have 50 years of memories that you can physically, you could see in your mind of how God's grace upon grace has shown itself in your life. You have even more reason to rejoice. So that's how we receive grace upon grace. There's a difference between those who sin willfully and those who struggle with sin. That's a common uh, 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 struggle with those who maybe have a circumstantial faith. Is that they question their salvation based upon how much they're sinning currently. And then they're concerned, they're genuinely concerned for their salvation because they're wondering, how could God love me if I just keep doing this over and over again? Or how could God love me that I did something so horrible in my mind that I can't even forgive myself? And that's a circumstantial faith. Their salvation is based upon how well they're obeying the law and when they have bad days, they don't feel saved. When they have good days, they feel saved. But then there's this real struggle of we do have a sinful nature that we're still fighting with, that we're not free from completely until we die and, and, and we're, we join the Lord in heaven. And he makes us new. He makes us, uh, we are co-heirs of Christ. And Romans 7 speaks to this. Uh, Romans 7, if you have time, let's, we're going to read it to, right now very quickly. Romans 7, chapter 24 it's a, Paul just finished a section on how he does the things he hates doing and he, he's not doing the things that he wants to do for the Lord. And in verse 24, he picks up saying, What a wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that immediate rejoicing that comes right after our, 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 uh, our guilt. So then, on the one hand, I myself, in my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So when we sing about freedom and being free in our worship songs, this is what we should have in mind. That we're not set free from from, uh, uh, physical slavery necessarily. We're not set free from all the, the mean people in our lives. We're not set free from all the circumstances in our lives. We're set free from the fact that we are in bondage to our own sin. And because of what Christ did for us, we are now free in Christ. That's what our freedom talks about. And when we sing about freedom, that's what we should be reflecting upon. That we're not bound to this yoke of slavery of, I hope I'm doing enough to get in heaven. That's the yoke that Jesus came to free the Jewish people from. In verse 18... 
final verse we're going to cover, goes on to say, No one has seen God. No one has seen God. We have examples throughout Scripture of, of uh, people who have talked to God, who have seen uh, facets of God's glory. We have examples like Isaiah and Moses and Jacob who wrestled with God and he realized after the fact, I just came face to face with God and lived. He realized that he should be dead in that moment and God spared his life. Uh, the fact that Jacob came in, into contact with the Almighty God. And so we, we uh, and Isaiah is the same way. He realized that he should have been dead in that moment. And the angel came down and purified him and, and cleaned him by touching his lips with a coal which signified his purification that, so that he may stand and still be alive in that moment where he saw the train of God's robe filling the temple with glory. So all the times when people saw God and spoke to him, there is still a sense that God veiled his glory enough that they were able to remain alive, that they didn't drop dead because of their sinful state. And so here, John, the Apostle John's writing, uh, no one has actually seen God, all of God's glory, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained him. That word explained is like the word exegesis. Uh, when we teach the scriptures, we, are, we should be exegeting the scriptures, meaning explaining it. We should be studying it in a way that we our hope in my prayer, my hope in prayer is anytime I teach anyone the word of God, is I hope and I pray that I'm explaining the scriptures according to what God would have, how God would have us understand it. And there's a great fear in that. And Jesus, when the Son came, he explained the Father. That his will, his message was all in line with the will and the message of the Father. That they didn't have two separate wills. That they were all unified. Uh, we worship a Godhead, a trinity, that is a God, three in one and, and one in three. A uh, very complex thing to consider. Uh, where there's Father, Son, and Spirit, but yet it's one God. He manifests himself in three persons, as we call it. But this is the importance of knowing who Jesus is, that he is God. That God himself intervened for us, took his own wrath upon the Son, so that we wouldn't have to take that wrath upon ourselves. And that's why we're saved. So it is through Jesus that we can know the Father, to say that he's in the bosom of the Father, it's, a, it's an intimate relationship. It's a side, the idea that Jesus, the Son, is in the side of the Father. You know, he's, he has this intimate connection with the Father. He's unified with the Father. He, he, uh, so he's in the Father's bosom in that sense. And so it is through Jesus that we can know the Father. We see this in Hebrews 5 when, as Jesus, he uh, obeyed the law and, uh, perfectly because he is fully God. And because of that, he can be our high priest before God. And so we know the Father through Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the what? You guys can finish this, right? The way, the truth, the life. No one gets to whom? The Father except through me. The Son explained the Father. It's through the Son that we understand the Father. And it's through the Son that we are saved. Here's a few reflection questions for us to close on. Number one is, you know, in light of understanding who Jesus is, that God came in the flesh, God with us, to take the penalty for our sins. What area of sinful struggle in your life are you experiencing God's grace upon grace the most right now? Is there an area of guilt and shame in your life? You, you, your faith is in the knowledge of who Jesus is but yet you are struggling with a sinful area in your life and you know it and you're aware of it. Where are you experiencing God's grace upon grace? How have you seen God expanding your awareness of sin in your life recently? Do you have an expanded awareness of your sin or do you have the same understanding of sin or do you keep dwelling on the same one or two sins that you know you're guilty of and you're just thankful that God forgave you of those few sins? Has God expanded your awareness of your sinfulness? so that you could even, in a greater way, give more thanks to him? How have your current circumstances affected your view of God's love and grace? Maybe you are struggling with, maybe you find that your faith has been circumstantial at times, and that's a, that's a real struggle for you. 
that you are struggling with reality. Does God love you? Does God, did God really forgive you? Last one, will you receive God's forgiveness and grace upon grace for your sin to receive eternal life? Uh, that's just my prayer for anyone in here. If you find that maybe you have had a circumstantial understanding of your faith in Christ, that you have had a finicky faith, I hope that reading the scripture, that studying this part of, first, the, uh, of John and hearing the word of God has, has helped you come to understanding of who Jesus is and what exactly he saves you from. You have this moment in every breath of your life from now on to come to faith in Christ and receive him and receive his grace. God, you know, the word came in truth and grace. That also means that he came in truth, meaning that what he says happens. And God's word says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's a promise. He came in truth and grace. So the truth is, when we confess, God forgives. And we have assurance of our salvation in that one act of righteousness of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Let's close in prayer and uh, we'll sing one more song to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace upon grace in all the areas in our lives. It's not from our circumstances that you save us from. It's our sin. That we have sinned against you and you alone, as Psalm 51 says. Psalm 51 also ends with saying, uh, create in me a pure heart, a clean and pure heart. And it also ends after that saying, it is a, a broken and contrite spirit that, that, that you don't despise. All of our acts of righteousness, all of our reasons why we think we're good people, all these things you hate because they're based in our own pride. But a broken and contrite spirit is one that you welcome. That's one that you respond to. That's one that you promise salvation for. Those who are broken and humbled. And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, you break us and humble us once again uh, today over the awareness, growing awareness of our sinfulness and just how much you love us based upon the knowledge of who Jesus is, that he is God. He came to forgive us our sins through his death and resurrection. Our knowledge and our faith is placed in that reality that as much as we struggle in this life, we can know that we are forgiven and we are free from our bondage to sin. And when our time comes, because we will die unless the Lord returns first, when we do die and come approaching death, our confidence will still be placed in Christ alone. And so we thank you once again for giving us this time to study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.